Take your Bible and turn to the very first book of the Bible, the very first verse of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. If you're new to the Bible, just take one, just open it up a few pages and you'll find the book of Genesis. It's right there, chapter 1, verse 1. I'm really excited about this sermon series. We're going to be in the book of Genesis for quite some time together. Like I had mentioned before, we're going to look at the first 11 chapters, and then we're going to take a break, and then we're going to look at chapters 12 to 50 as the months and years go on. Who knows how long we'll be within this book of the Bible. But I'm excited about this series, in part because of how foundational this book of the Bible is. There is so much foundational truth within the book of Genesis. This is the Word of God. This is God's God-breathed book, Genesis. And as the Word of God, one of the things that we're going to find within Genesis is that it doesn't just stay contained in and of itself. Genesis wasn't written or wasn't meant to be understood in just a vacuum. We have the whole of the other 65 books of the Bible, and what Genesis does is it contributes to a much larger narrative than just itself. Really, you could view it as the launching point. It's kind of like a spaceship that is just bursting at the beginning and it shoots into the atmosphere. This is what Genesis does in the Bible. It really, like a a, a rocket ship, just pushes us into the atmosphere of the Bible itself. And so we're going to study the accounts, the history, all of these stories within the book of Genesis. But I never want you to forget that Genesis gives us not only the origins of the cosmos and everything that exists... But also, it begins to show us the redemptive plan of God. It begins and contributes to this redemptive narrative that is seen throughout the entire Bible. And so Jesus is seen in the book of Genesis. He's often hinted at in in types and shadows. He's he's within it. He's promised. Do you remember the great promise in Genesis 3.15 that somebody is going to come and he's going to crush the head of the snake. Well, this is Jesus. And then we see all these other things happen like Joseph. And Joseph pictures Jesus. And you see Judah. And of course, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. And Judah shows us Jesus. There are so many things within the book of Genesis where we see Christ But there are some technicalities that we need to look at as we begin a book of the Bible, a few things that we need to understand. And that's even beginning with the the title, Genesis. What does the word Genesis mean? The word Genesis means origins, beginning. You'll hear this word every now and then in our own vocabulary when we're talking to different people. The genesis of a certain idea. The genesis of, of, a, of a company. A, a origin. A beginning. Or maybe around 20 years ago, some of you guys around my age, you might have played a Sega Genesis. But genesis means origins. And it's an apt title to the book because that is so much of what Genesis shows us. The book of Genesis tells us about the origins of all kinds of things. What is the origin of the heavens and the earth? Everything that you look out, this beautiful snow that's falling as I'm preaching. Where did that come from? Where did the idea for that come from? The origin of the heavens and the earth. Or, or something like time, space, and matter. Where did all that come from? Or solids and liquids and gases, microbes, smells, sounds, sights. Where did humans come from? Where did animals come from? Where did marriage come from? Or gender? Or sexuality? Where did culture come from? Something like, you think of music, or or buildings, 
forging of bronze and iron. Where did all of this come from? We see it all in the book of Genesis. We see the origins of all of these things in this great book of the Bible. But then what about on a spiritual side? Where did sin come from? Where did temptation come from? Where did God's law come from? Where did a relationship with God come from? All of these questions and so many more begin within the first few pages of the Bible. The origins of all of this is found in Genesis. And so that's the title of the book. But what about the author who wrote the book of Genesis? Well, we believe, I believe that Moses wrote uh, Genesis. And I don't think that we should really deviate from that. I think this is the traditional view. And I think this is also a view that Jesus and the apostles both have as well. Uh, One of the main reasons that we shouldn't pull away from Moses being the author is that the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. It's the Torah, and it's taken as a whole. And what Jesus and the apostles do later on in the New Testament is they'll refer back to the first five books of the Bible, and they'll ascribe it to Moses. So I think if Jesus and the apostles both think that uh, Moses wrote it, I think we should probably too. So as far as when Moses wrote this book, it's believed that Moses wrote it during the time of the wilderness wanderings. And so we can't really be sure on that, but potentially during the wilderness wanderings, Moses wrote this book of the Bible around 1,500 years before Jesus ever came to the earth. But look with me this morning, now that we have some of that out of the way, look with me this morning at the first 10 words of not only the book of Genesis, but the entire Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens... And the earth. In the late 1800s, a man by the name of Herbert Spencer lived. He was a hardline evolutionist. He was no friend to the Bible. He claimed to be an agnostic, not knowing whether or not God existed. And he was a philosopher and a biologist. He studied life on the earth. He was a very intelligent man. He was so intelligent, in fact, that Charles Darwin, whom many would call the father of evolution, Charles Darwin borrowed from Spencer the idea of survival of the fittest. But one of the key scientific contributions that Spencer made were the five manifestations of natural phenomena. The five key observations that you can make when you're looking at the natural observable world. And here they are. When you observe the natural world, this is what will be seen in your observations. You will see space, time, matter, motion, and force. Space, time, matter, motion, and force. So you go out and you observe the world. You'll see those five things. So let's kind of create a hypothetical scenario. If you're going to go to the zoo with your family on a nice summer day, and you go to that zoo, and you see a lion within its cage, and the lion begins to roar. Well, when you watch that lion, what is he? He's made of matter, right? He's substance. He's, and, and you're watching the substance of this lion taking up space, right? So you have time and space. You have this substance of a lion, and he's taking up this caged area. But you're also watching that lion on a certain day. You're watching this lion in time. Okay, so stay with me. You have time, space, and matter. It's on a special day. You're watching the substance of a lion. And he is taking up space. Okay? But as you're watching this lion, he's doing something. There's action there. He's, he's roaring 
Which then brings us to where does that roar come from? It comes from the force of the lion, right? So you have time, space, matter, motion, and force. So the lion is made of a substance, that's matter. The lion is occupying a part of the zoo, that's space. The lion is doing this in a moment, that's time. The lion is doing an action with the roaring, that's motion or action. And the lion is doing this by his own sheer power. He is the force behind this roar. Are you with me? So just in watching the lion roar, you are observing what Spencer said you would observe. You would observe matter, space, time, motion, and force. And you might be thinking, well, how does this apply to Genesis 1-1? How do the observations of an agnostic evolutionary scientist in the 1800s apply to Genesis 1-1? Everything that Spencer told us that we would observe in regard to natural phenomena is found in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, that's time, God, that's force, created, that's motion, the heavens, that's space, and earth, that's matter. So around 3,500 years before Herbert Spencer ever made his accurate observation, the pen of Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, made the same exact observation. He told us that's what we would observe. And in this morning's sermon, I want to look at these five key observations within Genesis 1-1. And they can all be found on the back of your bulletin this morning. But just breaking it apart into those five pieces in the beginning, time, God force created that's motion the heavens that's space and the earth that's matter so first time in the beginning time's a a baffling concept i think all of us are constantly grappling and thinking about time how can we slow down time or maybe how could we slow christmas down a little bit so we can enjoy it for a longer period of time or how could we make it go faster because we're tired of christmas being around but time is really a baffling concept every single one of you is bound to time all of you were born at a certain time all of you were conceived at a certain time you could say i was born at midnight on december 25th 1950 Or that when somebody dies, you would say, well, that person died at midnight on December 25th, 2019, or whatever. We are all bound by time in a very real way to the point where all of our tombstones are going to have a date when we were born and a date when we died. Time elapses. We all are getting older, getting more and more gray in my beard, my hair. And you are too, if you have a beard. But how did this time, where did this time come from? This is something that doesn't just baffle us, but it it baffles people who study time, the the beginning of all of this thing. How, How did time come into being what it is? Or is time really just kind of an illusion? We're all just kind of in a matrix and it's all just kind of an illusion. But the Bible is clear that there was a beginning. The very first words of the Bible In the beginning. Time has a beginning. There was a time when time began. In fact, the word for beginning here in the original Hebrew indicates an absolute beginning. This was the the very first moment. This was the very first moment of, of initial time. And time is important for us to think about here for a moment because of everything that else that flows from this verse. Because there needed to be a time for everything to be placed into. 
So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but there needed to be a time for all of that to be put into. So there needed to be time for the space to be placed into. There needed to be a time for the action to take place. There needed to be a time for the force to act. There needed to be a time for the matter to be put in place. Time is an incredibly relevant and important for us to grab onto if we're going to understand Genesis 1-1 and the rest of the chapter. Yet one of the most burning questions that we often have in regard to in the beginning, this concept of time, is when did all of this happen? When Moses writes down for us in the beginning, does he have in mind just a few thousand years from before he wrote those words? Or is Moses thinking in terms of of millions of years? Or is he thinking in terms of, of billions of years? I'm sure many of you have your opinions on when you think the earth, when time actually began. This has been a long debated subject among Christians. When did the universe and eventually our planet come into existence? If you were to sit down with a modern scientist, they would likely say, well, the earth is 13.5 billion years old. Or they would say, or excuse me, the universe is 13.5 billion and the earth is four and a half billion years old. There are Christians as well who when they started their Bible reading program on January 1st and they read in the beginning, they're thinking in terms of billions of years. They're not thinking in terms of thousands of years. We're going to get into this a little more in the next couple of weeks. Not right now, not today. But I just wanted to whet your appetite a little bit to start thinking about that. Because I think it is important, and I think there are theological ramifications to what you believe about the beginning of time. But what we know so far is in the beginning, there is time. But next, we see force. We see God in the beginning, God. I liked what one author said when he said, The Bible does not argue for the existence of God. It declares it. The Bible's not going to argue with you about whether or not God exists. It simply declares, in the beginning, God. Friend, affirming what the Bible has to say from this very first verse is not going to make you friends with the world. There are plenty of college professors in the state of Maine who would simply scoff at the idea that God even exists. And so if you're going to affirm Genesis 1-1, you are going to have to, to interact with those in the world who doubt the existence of God or deny the existence of God or argue about the existence or the concept of God at all, whereas the Bible is very clear, in the beginning, God. The very first verse of the Bible declares God. There's there's nothing within the Christian uh, thought process that can deny the existence of God. He is there from the very first verse. And like any great story... When we open the Bible, we quickly get introduced to the main character of the story. Just four words in. In the beginning, God. God writes this story. This story is all about Him. Creation is about Him. And the first thing that we see about this God is that He is a powerful, almighty force. The word used for God here is the word Elohim. It's a form from the word that actually means strength or might. And this is a notion about God that is carried throughout the entire Bible. He is the omnipotent, all-powerful, sovereign over everything God. This is what the first verse and the rest of the Bible show us about Him. But the word for God, Elohim, also indicates something else about Him. And that is a lack of femininity. 
The word is in the masculine. When you consider the grammatical gender of the word Elohim, it is in the masculine. And we see this all throughout the Bible too. You don't see God referred to as her or she. Masculine pronouns are ascribed to God, he and him. So we have a couple of ideas about who this God is just by looking at the word Elohim. That he is the masculine, all-powerful God. And, and I, I'm not ascribing to him manhood in the same sense that we are men. But of course, he is being ascribed here in this word. It is in the masculine gender. But there's also something else that's intriguing about this word. And that is in the, it's in the plural form. This word Elohim is in the plural. I don't want to overplay this and I don't want to underplay this. But I think... That what is obviously, this word is obviously open to, in being plural, is it's open to the triune God. That there is at least a glimmer from the very first verse of the Bible that God is not this singular man upstairs, white hair, white beard thing. No, he's, he's in the plural. In fact, when you consider the words in the beginning, God, do they not even remind you of some words that we looked at a few weeks ago in John chapter 1? So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And so at a minimum, we see a glimmer of the Trinity in the word Elohim, God. Yet when we look at the rest of the Bible, in John chapter 1, verse 1, We can not only say that the Father was present in creation, we can say John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and that Word was with God and was God. Back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. And the Spirit is here as well in the very second verse, right? And the Spirit moves upon the face of the waters. And so at minimum, we see a glimmer of the Trinity in the word Elohim, God. Yet upon that rest of the look of the rest of the Bible, you see the Son. And the Spirit. It's the triune God who created all things. The triune God that was the force behind creation. It's the triune God who is the Creator Himself. Specifically about Jesus, the Apostle Paul tells us so clearly in Colossians 1, For by Him all things were created. By Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. This is, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. That by Him and for Him all things were created that were visible and not visible. The author of Hebrews tells us this. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So often, again, we have this misguided imagination that imagines God, this big man upstairs type thing, creating everything. Yet it's actually by and through Christ that all things are created. In the next verse of Genesis, again, you see the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the waters. The creation of the universe is from the force that we understand as the triune God. And so if we're going to consider Christ from the book of Genesis, as we noted a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and He's talking with a couple of guys and He's showing Himself from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And we were using that to expressly show in the, the Psalm series we were doing, looking at Christ within the, the Psalms. 
Well, here within the book of Moses, the first book of Moses, Jesus can open to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, read, in the beginning God, and He can say, that's me. I am from the very first verse of the Bible. Friends, I I have a fear about going through this book of the Bible together. That you would be more wowed with information that's within this book than filled with wonder over your triune God. And I think a lot of Christians treat Genesis this way. They're more wowed with information than they are in wonder over their triune God that's within it and the express reality of Christ being within it. Father, Son, and Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity creating. Does that cause you to get analytical and think about all the facts? Or does that cause you, your mind and heart to leap in wonder and praise and to give God glory? I like what Derek Thomas asked or said. He said, first and foremost, Genesis 1.1 tells us that God is the ultimate being. Before there was a universe, there was God. He exists independently of matter and sequence of time. God transcends space and time. He is not limited by spatial considerations. He is everywhere in His fullness continually. Nor is He locked into the present in any way. It is not strictly accurate to say that before the universe was created, there was nothing. For this too is a spatial and temporal idea. Before, he created, before the created universe existed, there was God. Theologians speak of God's immensity, infinity, and transcendence to describe this, and our minds race at the thought of it, unable to take it in. All we can do is acquiesce and worship. Genesis 1 verse 1 should cause you to worship. So in the beginning, that's time, God, that's force. And third, we see His action. We see Him in motion. In the beginning, God created. I heard the story of a little girl in her Sunday school class and her Sunday school teacher was teaching that God created everything. And the teacher was doing a really good job of explaining this great big concept to these precious little minds that God created everything. And so this little girl raises her hand and this is a true story. She raises her hand and says to her teacher, no, 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 that's not true. God didn't create everything. She said a whole bunch of things are made in China. But friends, the all-powerful force, our God, created. I think it's a wonderful facet of Him that we don't step back and consider enough. Our Creator God. When the apostles pray in the book of Acts, I forget what chapter it's in, there's a prayer that it begins that way. That the God who created the heavens and the earth, the seas and everything that's within it. We don't often pray that way or think that way. We're so busy with our lives that we forget who He actually is as our Creator. And that this creation and everything that we see within the heavens and the earth, that it should cause our hearts to burst into, Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds Thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. Like the creation actually makes my heart burst into praise over God. When I consider all the worlds that He has made, it causes me to wonder, to think that God created everything. He designed it all. Isn't it funny how smart scientists think they are? 
<laughs> when they look at a telescope and they can see in a distant whatever, and it's like, yeah, that's, that's like a million, billion, trillion, zillion miles away from where God even is. You, like, you can't even get there, right? Like, it's so funny how, how we, uh, if you parallel it, how much we haven't changed in a few thousand years when you consider the Tower of Babel wanting to reach up into heaven and we have our telescopes looking up into heaven and we, we kind of think we know it, right? But how lunatic do you have to be to walk outside and to see the snowfall and to go up on Sugarloaf and go skiing or whatever it is? How lunatic do you have to be to look at it all and to think that it happened by chance? But yet millions and millions of people will look into the Hubble telescope and they'll look at the mountains and they'll look at the oceans and they'll say that it all just happened by chance. Yet as Christians, we affirm and believe that in the beginning, God created. There's not a mountain peak that isn't there, that is there by chance. There's not an ocean that was poured out by chance. There's not a star in the sky that got there by chance. All of it, all things were gloriously created by God and it was all created out of nothing. Ex nihilo. This is an odd concept for us because everything that we create as human beings was fashioned from something else. The chairs that you're sitting on were fashioned by something else. If you're going to build a table, you've got to go borrow God's tree to build that table, right? If you're going to go build a rock wall, you've got to go borrow God's rocks in order to build that wall. Anything that you do, you borrow from God in order to create it. None of us, when we create something, is it ever out of nothing. We always borrow. But God created all that we see right now in, in one another, in the seat you're sitting on. He created all of that out of what was unseen. Everything you see came to be by the very word of his power. Yet there is something that we have that the millions and millions don't have that help us to see this truth. And it is faith. Hebrews 11 and verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made out of things that are visible, invisible. And so when you're interchanging with a, somebody, an atheistic evolutionist about some of these things, if you bring up faith, you've got an immediate issue, don't you? Because for them, faith is nothing. But we understand that everything that was made by God, and we do so by faith, not some kind of wishful thinking faith. Like faith is not some kind of empty, nebula, nebulous thing. Hebrews 11.1 1 also tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. And so without faith, we cannot properly understand the creative action of God. Without faith, you cannot understand the creative action of God. So we have time, we have force, we have action. And then we have space and matter. And I'm going to look at these closer together with less time because we're going to be looking at this more in depth in the coming weeks. But you have space and you have matter. In order to have a place to put his creation, God created space. If God is going to create all of these wonderful things, there needs to be a space to put all of his wonderful creations. There needs to be space for humans to live and explore. There needs to be space for animals to run. There needs to be space for all of his creation. 
You step out on a warm night and you look into the sky and you see shooting stars and you see the planets and you do get your telescope out and you look at the moon. Some of those planets and stars are so huge. And God created an even bigger space for them to all be hung on. He created the heavens. But the center of the universe, the center of the attention of God, would be the earth that he created. This little blueberry that all of us kind of rotate around the sun. This was going to be the center point. This was going to be the centerpiece of God's creation to the point where human beings would be put here, but Jesus himself, as God, would come here. As the creator of the earth, it all belongs to him. Every now and then you might see a sign. I went up north early in the fall and I saw this sign. This is God's country. We look out in Wyoming. Oh, I want to go to God's country out in Wyoming. Big sky, right, Montana? But all country is God's country. It all belongs to Him. Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And just like anything that God has created, God is the sovereign sustainer and controller of all things that happen on the earth. Psalm 135 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Friend, God is the one who is quite literally shaking the heavens right now and causing that snow to fall. God is the one who causes the rain to fall for your gardens to grow. God is the one who causes the sun to come out to help your plants to grow. God is the one who grows the the earth for your animals to thrive. He created and He sustains And he controls his creation. This is my father's world. It belongs to him. He created all of the earth. He created matter. And it all belongs to him. And we are to be good stewards of it. We have so much to look forward to in this book of the Bible. There's so much to explore within Genesis. And I'm convinced that this first verse sets the kind of tone that we desperately need to hear if we're going to understand this book well. A verse like this should cause us to worship. And you might be sitting there thinking, Brandon, I've got problems. I'm going through stuff right now. How does looking at the beginning of the Bible with God doing all, how is this really going to help me practically in my daily walk? How does Genesis 1-1 impact my life today at this very moment? And I think what it does is it shows us Who He is. In all of His Creator glory. The powerful, the almighty, the King of creation. Which in turn helps us to understand who we are. As His creations. Would you take your Bible and turn to Genesis, or excuse me, Job 38. You're going to want to turn there because I'm going to read a chunk from Job 38. And I think this helps display for us our own response to God being the Creator. How does this help you in your day, today and tomorrow and the next day? You remember the story of Job? Remember how terrible he had it? God allowed Satan to inflict all kinds of terrible things on Job. He lost everything. He lost all of his animals. He lost his family. He lost his health. He lost so much. Job is interacting with some of his friends. But then you get to the end of the book of Job and you see God speak to Job in an incredible way. Look at chapter 38 and verse 1. 
Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is it that darkens counsel by my words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Now, now if God said that to you, how would you feel in that moment? (laughs) Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Okay, so here comes questions from God to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all of this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory. And that you may discern the path to its home. You know, for you were born then. And the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Which I have reserved for the time of trouble. For the day of battle and war. What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? Or or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain? And a way for the thunderbolt? To bring rain on the land where no man is. On the desert in which there is no man. To satisfy the waste and desolate land. And to make the ground sprout with grass. Has the, the rain a father? Or who has begotten the do- drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that the floods of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into the moss and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Then chapter 39 basically does the same thing. Who in the world are you, Job? But then look at Job 40 in verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? 
I lay my hand on my mouth. God asks, he rifles through all of these questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Can you do anything about the belt of Orion up in the sky? Can you do anything about Pleiades, some kind of ocean, sea creature, monster thing? Can you help the bear find its food for its young? Can you do anything, Job? Is there anything that you can do? And you get to that speech by God. And Job literally says, I am nothing. How can I answer you? And he literally lays his hand on his mouth. Just like, it's time to shut up now. When you understand our God, as now Job has just understood him to be, it puts us in an incredible position of humility that you and I are dust. We're made of the stuff and we're going to go back to the stuff. We are finite. Yet it doesn't leave us there. It shows us an incredible truth that our Creator God, as powerful and wonderful as He is, He took thought of you. He made you of dust. And you're going to go back to it. But yet he thought of you to where he took on flesh. He took on this stuff and he laid it down on the cross. And he did it for us. So he created all things. We rebelled against him. And instead of permanently wiping us off the face of the earth like we deserve, he instead condescended. He came to the earth he created And he died for the people that he created. Would any of you give your life for something that you created other than your children? But yet we are his children. And he came and he died for us. Friend, if you do not know this creator God, he has revealed himself. Within the word of God, he has revealed himself to us so explicitly that from the very first book, very first verse of the Bible, we see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we can know Him, truly know Him, through a relationship, through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. I would encourage you to trust in that this morning. And if you do already trust in the finished work of Jesus, I would encourage you, to humble yourself and to remember once again who you are as you stand before your Creator and behold Him and to worship Him rightly for who He is.